Hello, everybody. I'm excited to have you here. Uh, I'm Paul Kutzinger. I'm from the Amazon Alexa team. And I'm responsible for teaching people how to build skills. So we have uh, evangelists and tech doc writers and solutions architects that fly around the world and talk about Alexa to folks like you. And I'm really excited to be here today because uh, I'm with Dylan from Pulse Labs. And uh, I don't think I can think of another group of people who have seen more skills. They've seen skills from the very early phase all the way through launching them, and, and they've seen customers interacting with them in deep, interesting ways. And so I, I can't figure out who would be better at helping <laughs> share best practices for Alexa. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot, so I hope you will too. So Dylan. Awesome, well thank you, Paul. Um, so yeah, I'm Dylan Zwick. I'm the Chief Product Officer of Pulse Labs. And first off, thank you all for coming and for joining us here today. Uh, Pulse Labs is a company that offers testing solutions for developers and designers of voice applications. And over the last year, we've tested skills for over 100 brands as part of Amazon's Managed Partner Program. And we're going to talk to you today about some of the learnings that we've uh, acquired in terms of that testing over the last year. Very cool. So how many people have built voice experiences so far? Can I see sense of hands? Awesome. Oh, great. That's awesome. I, I'm really excited about right now. I think that... Uh, we are at this transformation time when we might see a new way of interacting with your computing come to fruition. I think we're at the very, very beginning of it, but I can certainly imagine a time where there's this sense of ambient computing and I have access to things that are not only within my arm's length, like a keyboard and a screen, but from across the room or from around me or interacting with the different sensors in my life and so forth. And to be in this very, very front edge of helping people understand what it's like to have a natural interaction with your computing rather than interaction where it's like, I've got to learn where all the keys on the keyboard are, or I've got to learn how to double click and how to click and drag uh, instead to have a natural conversational experience is uh, pretty cool. And I'm glad we're getting to the point where it's all starting to click over and start to work. So my hope is that through, the, through this talk and through a bunch of other things here at reInvent, we'll be able to reach out to folks who are starting to build small studios and agencies. They're thinking about the full spectrum of voice experiences all the way through design, build, testing, and launching. And what we want to talk about today is we want to go pretty deep into each of these things. So if you haven't built a skill yet, uh, we'll, we'll make sure that we keep it understandable. And what I hope that you, do, you take away from this is an awareness of what's possible and then you can go back and look into the details and see how it's working. If you've built a lot of skills, I hope that you'll be able to see some of the underpinnings of, of how you can maybe do it a different way. I've certainly seen a lot of people who started building skills two years ago, three years ago, a year ago, and uh, it's changed. It's changed a lot. And so you need to find a way to look up every once in a while and, and reapproach how you go at skills. So we'll dive into these buckets. Let's start with uh, design. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. Yep. All right. So before you build a skill, before you test a skill or launch a skill, you actually have to figure out what skill you're going to make and you have to design it. And there are some very important ideas in voice design that are distinct from design in primarily visual mediums like web and mobile. So today we're going to talk uh, and kind of dig deep into some principles that underlie fundamental differences between how you might want to design for voice or ideas that are very, very important in voice design that might be distinct uh, and not as important in visual design. So, we, uh, I've included a number of examples here from testing that we've actually done in Pulse Labs. Like they used to say in Dragnet, you know, the names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty. Um, <laughs> all of the audio is going to be me speaking, and all of the responses are going to be Alexa, even if it was pre-recorded audio. But uh, these are actual transcripts from real interaction sessions that we had during testing. All right, so. Designing for voice is fundamentally different in many ways from designing in a visual medium. So in a visual medium, user input can be constrained, uh, presentation is simultaneous, data is persistent, and text input is hard. It's why point and click was such a, uh, an important revolution there. With voice design, user input is unconstrained, presentation is sequential, data is ephemeral, and text input is as easy as it can be. All you have to do is talk. So this presents some fundamental differences that we're going to dive, deep in, we're going to dive into in terms of three principles that can be described as be adaptable, be contextual, and be available. 
So what do we mean by this first one, be adaptable? Well, the idea here is that in a, in a well-designed voice application, you need to be able to let your users speak in their own words. Even something as simple as a yes or no question. In visual design, you could, for example, put up a big green yes button and a big red no button. And if you see these options, you can be pretty certain that you're going to get one of two different responses from your user. However, even something as simple as a yes or no, in voice design, someone could say yes, or they could say yeah, uh-huh, sure, why not, or any of literally dozens of other utterances that would express the same idea or intent of yes. Similarly, the English language is vast, and almost everything has more than one word that can refer to it. Even something as simple as a cat, you can be a cat, a kitty, a tabby, even a grimalkin. Is grimalkin real? It is. I looked it up. Okay. okay. And all of those should be understood as a voice application as, being, as referring to a cat. All right. So in an entertainment adventure skill that we tested a little while ago, there was a bartender that uh, had some issues understanding a few of the requests and really didn't uh, follow this be adaptable uh, uh, principle. So if you asked it for whiskey, Bartender, the good stuff. Johnny Walker. All right. If you asked it for whiskey, <laughs> it would know what you were talking about. However, what are you drinking? Johnny Walker. Hmm. Never heard of that. I'll have my usual. If you asked it for a particular type of whiskey, like Johnny Walker, it wouldn't understand. A well-designed voice application should be able to understand Johnny Walker or pretty much any other type of brand of whiskey as being the same request as a whiskey. You need to be ready for all of these different utterances that your users might put forward and be able to respond to them appropriately, or else it'll seem uncanny and unnatural. Well, Amazon and Alexa provides a number of tools and concepts that let you do this, and Paul's going to talk to you a little bit more about them now. All right, so the fundamental uh, job as a designer in web and mobile and so forth, not the fundamental, a core piece of their job is to figure out what are the labels for the buttons. You got to pick the right labels. It could be deploy or publish or whatnot. In voice, it's a slightly different job, and that is to train the NLU engine. So you're training a machine learning engine about what the intentions are. So in this case, I have a serve drink intention. The, the customer wants a drink, and there's a variety of ways you can say, I'll have a whiskey serve up a whiskey and so forth. Those are utterances that become training data for that intent. Uh, a little deeper, you can actually include slots in this. So you have your utterance, which is I'll have a whiskey, but whiskey could be replaced with a drink slot, so it's a lot like a variable. And that drink slot can have a variety of things like whiskey, te tequila, beer, water, and so forth. Now, each of the slot values, like whiskey, can also have synonyms. So Johnny Walker, um, what else is there? Whistle pig boss hog <laughs> and Bushmills. Um, so let me show you a little bit of how that looks. I do this, and then I do this, and then I do this. Great. Uh, not great. It's on the wrong screen. Uh, let, me, let me stop mirroring my screens real quick. Oh my gosh, it's on the other screen. Just a minute. I gotta <laughs> do the dance. This. Uh, where do I do the not mirror? Arrangement. It's alive. <laughs> okay. They're Great. applauding for you. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So here's a skill that um, I will ask it for some symptoms. Uh, so I say open. Symptom guru. Sorry, I'm not sure about that. Did I completely misspell it? Open symptom guru. Welcome to symptom guru. How are you feeling? Uh, well, my tummy uh, is pretty upset, uh, to be honest. Okay. Sorry to hear that. 
Let's see what we can figure out. So let's zoom in here a little bit, and I'm gonna show you what's happened. So I said an utterance that said, well, my tummy is pretty upset, to be honest. That was my utterance that I said. And that resolved to an intent, the symptom intent. So I was getting a symptom. Now within here, I can see a few things happened. One is I had a slot value for preface, which said, well, my. And in my code, I don't care about the preface. I'm just gonna throw it away. I'm actually looking for the core body parts and the core feelings. So this is just a nicety to let the customer say a variety of kinds of preferences. All right, uh, how does it feel? So in my, my API or my database, I'm gonna look up a symptom that you might have. They said upset, and in this case, I realized what they meant to say was nauseated. So now I have a synonym. I have what they said, upset, and what they meant, nauseated. And then I have, on the scale, I have pretty, and I could tell if that was a high, medium, or low intensity thing, and in this case, I mapped it to a medium. Uh, and, and by the way, none of my code has run yet. This, this, what you're looking at here is this JSON input. This is what happens from when the user says an utterance, it goes to the Alexa service, the Alexa service composes this JSON right here and sends it to your code. And now your code can process this JSON and do whatever it wants. So no code has been written to this, to this point. Once I get this JSON, I do whatever logic I want to go look up symptoms and so forth and, and compose a response. Um, so what else do we have in here? We have the adjunct, which is to be honest, which I also just throw away. I don't care about that in my, uh, in my API. And then the body part was a tummy, and so that's abdominal. So if you really look at it, I have abdominal, medium pain, and uh, nauseated. And now I can go do my lookup based on that. So I know they want a symptom for those things, and I can go figure out what's happening. So that's the idea of using utterances, slots, and synonyms. All right, so that cuts back to here, to here, to here. Did I do it right? I think so. I don't think so. Oh. Let's do my one. There we go. Oh. All the buttons. There we go. Okay. All right, cool. Thanks, Paul. All right, the next important principle that uh, we want to talk about is the idea that it needs to be contextual. So you want to individualize your entire interaction to the user with whom your application is speaking. Now, personalization is a big deal in a lot of different areas right now, but it's particularly critical in machine learning, or in uh, voice applications, because We've lived our lives conversing with people. We have a natural expectation of what these conversations are going to be like. And almost all of those conversations have been one-on-one -on -one and personalized to the individual that was speaking. Even something as simple as saying hello in the morning, well, you can say hello, how's it going, hey, hi, or any of many other things. And if you only said one thing every single time, hello, 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 this would seem uncanny and unnatural. Well, the same thing applies in conversational design for voice applications. Now, the simplest way of introducing some variance is to be random. But I need to warn you that random can be dangerous. For example, we tested a quiz skill a little while ago that had the following interaction. Give me a trivia question. True or false, an orange has more vitamin C than a cup of strawberries. False. Well done. You get an A plus on vitamin C. Didn't know Would that. Would you like another question? No, thank you. Too tough? Okay. All right, so if somebody just barely got a question correct, a response of too tough doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so that was a random response there that was designed to introduce some variance in the interaction, but actually made it seem uncanny and it made it also seem like the skill really wasn't paying attention. Now a well-designed quiz skill is going to remember the, what, the, what the interactions have been for that user during that game and is going to be able to store them and use those when conversing with that user. But a well-designed quiz skill like, for example, the popular Jeopardy is also going to store, skill, uh, store scores from previous games going to understand how well that user is done and how well they might be improving, is also going to understand how well other users have done on that particular day and be able to compare the user with the average, 
and also is going to understand things like how long it's been since that particular user played the game. So if you, tr if you start Jeopardy and you haven't been there for a while, it'll actually say, welcome back, we haven't seen you in a while. So in order to individualize the entire interaction, you've got to be able to store and then access all of that data. And Amazon provides some really cool tools that let you do that that Paul's going to tell you about right now. OK. So this is a skill that will let you guess a number. And it'll tell you, oh, it's higher or lower until you actually figure out the number that it's guessed. That's the, the basic of the skill. The first part of the concept is to think about conversations happen in turns. So I say something, Alexa says something, I say something, you say something. And you can persist context across those turns. So while we're having a conversation, keep the context. And then the other one is, I might quit the conversation and come back tomorrow or an hour later or whatever, and I want to pick back up where I left off. So we need to have persistence in both of those ways. Um, so let's, let's take a look at this. We say open high-low game. Welcome to high-low guessing game. You have played two times. Would you like to play? OK, and I say yes, I want to play. Great. Try saying a number to start the game. What number do you think it is? Nine. I'm going to bet you that's 99% wrong. We'll find out. Nine is too high. Too high. Oh, interesting. OK, so let me show you what's going on in here in, in, in the JSON responses. Um, by the way, there, I have a Lambda function that's running the web service in the back end to keep track of comparing what's happening and all that stuff. But that thing's getting torn down all the time. It's uh, temporary. I don't keep all of my state there in its memory and stuff. Everything is getting passed through in this JSON that's going back and forth. And so here I have an attributes block. I'll zoom in for you. And so far, it knows I've played two games. And the current number is three. That's a hint for the next person I ask what the number is. And then the, we're in a game right now. And so it did, it, is, it did its logic and said, hey, that's too high. So what number should I try now? <laughs> good call, good call. I got a good feeling about five. OK, so three is correct. Um, and then I say, no, I don't want to play a new game. And now I have three games have been played. So that was during the session, during the conversation, during the session, I'm keeping track of the current question in the trivia game, uh, what level you're on, uh, what number you've got, you've picked in this high-low game, and so forth. But the other part is I can take all of that and just save it off into a database or into a flat file on S3 or whatever you might want to save it off to. And now I can remember next time I start up a new game. So I say, open high-low game. And it says you've played three times. Which, so it's remembered how often I've played. So you could do things like, wow, 10 times in a row, that's amazing. You can have like a different welcome that's more contextual based on uh, what people were doing. Uh, the way you do this in the, in the SDK is very straightforward. It's uh, you basically just say, save an, create an attribute uh, called, in this case, uh, what did I call it? Current game or count game count. Why am I struggling to find it? Uh, let's go with four. Yes. Four. Oh, good. Did I just totally misspelled that? Four, four. <laughs> I'm better at saying things than typing things. OK, great. So I would create an attribute called what games like played. And I could set the, or, yeah, set the value to 4 or guess number and set the value to 70. And then there's a persistence adapter. You just call a line and you just say save. So you can do this on your own if you're doing whatever web service technology you want because it's just JSON. Or, or the SDK will let you save and, and retrieve those attributes. OK, so let's move on to the next part. All right, thanks, Paul. All right, so the third principle we're going to talk about today is maybe the one that is the biggest difference between visual design and voice design. And that's the idea that in voice design, you need to be available. You want to keep all of your interactions as top level as possible. Now, the reason for this is that in visual design, data is persistent, as I mentioned earlier. So you can pretty easily keep track of where you are along a path, and also, 
Space is at a premium. You can't overwhelm your user with all of the different possible options all at the same time. In voice, neither of those are true. It can be difficult to remember exactly where you are along any particular path, and even more so, it's unnecessary because all of the options that could possibly be available to the user should probably be available to them if they want them. So you want to avoid wide top-level UIs and instead keep your UIs as broad and as flat and as shallow as you possibly can make them. Now this is a very frequent issue in voice design and it can really frustrate users. For example, a while ago, we tested a ticket ordering skill that the first thing it did was ask you whether you wanted to search for a particular movie or whether you wanted to find a movie near you. If you went down one of those paths, you couldn't change it without going all the way back to the main menu. Find a movie near me. You can browse movies that are coming soon, or I can give a recommendation. What would you like to do? Find a wrinkle in time. You are in the browse movie section. Say stop to return to main menu. Wouldn't it be nice if when the user said find a wrinkle in time, it could just find a wrinkle in time? Mm -hmm. Another example was in a food reordering skill we tested a while ago, in which the user had to specify the location of the restaurant from which they wanted to pick up their food. However, in order to change this location, the user first had to request to change something. You can place this order or change something. Which would you like? Change the location. Sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't quite understand. <laughs> you can place this order or change something. Which would you like? Change something. Okay. You can change the pickup time, change the location, change the pickup method, or change the order item. What would you like to do? Change the location. The entire promise of the ease of use with a voice application is going to be lost if that's the sort of interaction your users are going to experience. It's a very common issue and it comes usually from designers that have a background in visual design and are trying to translate that directly into voice. All right, so Paul's going to talk to you about handlers, which is one of the tools that Amazon provides that lets you be available to your users as much as possible. Yeah, so the, the core premise there is if you have these very rigid hierarchy things like you might find in a wizard or something like that where you can really control what the user is going to say all the way through, that uh, works great in visual but not in voice because people are going to say all sorts of interesting different things. So we have to have a way that allows you to respond to the situation. And so what you really think of is the user says something and now you have all that information from the intents and utterances and slots, right? And there is some sort of situation going on. So the situation could be uh, I'm in the middle of a game or I am in front of a monster with a sword or I'm in the town or whatever the situation might be. So they said something plus there's a situation and now Alexa has to respond. And if, as long as you can design your skill to be, uh, respond in those kinds of ways, respond situationally, then you get past all these other things. Because in that world where the person said uh, change my location, it would just be like, oh, the person said change my location. and uh, I have a current location, so now I'm going to offer the others, right? They could just respond to it. So how do we do that in code? Let me show you some techniques. Um, one way to think of it is a little bit like a state machine. Uh, state machines will get you part of the way there. If you go um, all the way for state machines, it can get a little bit uh, overburdening. So we have this technique here called can handle and handle. So in that game that I was showing you a minute ago, where we were guessing the numbers and going high and low and stuff like that, when I said the number four, I would end up coming here. So we have a number guess intent. I guessed the number. That was the intent I had. And the slot value would have been four. And the first part of the logic is can handle. And can handle, in this case, is saying, if the game is started and I'm currently playing and I have a... Um, an intent request called number guess, right? So I'm currently playing, I have an intent request, and it's the number guess, right? Then, if that, if that condition is true, it'll run the associated handler. So this whole file is, in fact, made up of a series of these can handles, 
Like here's another one. Um, here's one where when I say no, if the person is not currently playing and they get an intent that is a no intent, then I do this logic, right? So in my number handling one here, if it was true, then I will run whatever logic is inside this handle, right? So you can do whatever you want at that point. So conceptually, you think of a can handle and then a handle. I can handle something and I go. So let's go back to like a, a dungeon crawl kind of an experience. You say attack. So I got an intent that was the attack intent. Now it would say, if you're in a dungeon and you have a weapon, then do the logic that says fight the monster and do your thing. If I said attack and I'm in the city, it's gonna say, you can't do that here and the police can come and get you and take you away, right? So you can have a different reaction to that situation even though the user said something slightly different in situations, okay? So you really wanna think about that. The situation, you put in the can handle and then the handle is how you respond to that situation. So, and, and this is in the SDK, it's for JavaScript, Node, and Python. You can go through those various different uh, ways of looking at it. Cool. Back to you, Dylan. All right, so once you've designed your skill, the next thing you wanna do is you wanna be able to build your skill. And Amazon has been implementing a number of awesome uh, new features that let you build your skill the way a professional developer is gonna to want to do it. And Paul's gonna tell you a little bit more about some of these features and how you can use them. Okay. First part of understanding it, like, so far what I've been showing is we have a developer console, there's an AWS console or whatever web service you might wanna use, you can go use it that way you would. Um, and you can go through and you can click on all the buttons and boxes and use the stuff. Um, but once you start really iterating on your skill or you start having a team that's collaborating, you're gonna wanna go a step farther than that and start using some of the tools that will allow you to programmatically access all this stuff. So behind the scenes, there's this thing called the Skill Management API. The Skill Management API will, will just pro let you programmatically control all of that console. And you can use it in a couple ways. The, the core part of it is the Ask CLI. It's a command line interface. And this is where you can just go into terminal and start going crazy and doing your thing. Uh, and then there's Smappy, which is an API layer that you can use to create tools off of. So you may have seen a variety of tools out there that will let you create uh, Alexa skills, and those are using Smappy in order to let you create the skill, update your in-skill purchase items, and use their UI instead of our UI, right? So you might, if you, let's say you're an agency, you might wanna build out a, uh, an experience where, uh, let me make up a story, like you are gonna help podcasters and so you make an experience that is the podcaster skill maker thing. And podcasters can go to your website, they can fill out a form, they can add their metadata to it, and then you, through the skill, the, the skill management API, could package all that up and publish it and create a skill on their behalf, figuring out how you're gonna do it. So let's take a look at uh, how this works. Not in slides. Okay, so here I am in my <coughs> command line interface, sorry. Um, so I'm gonna do ask, which is the, uh, the name of the command there, and I go new. So I'm creating a new skill. I need a name. So what should I use for the name of my skill? What's that? Reinvent 18, okay. Reinvent 18. I almost used silence as the name, but that was gonna be. <laughs> okay, so now I've got a skill created. Um, and I'm gonna go into reInvent 18. And it's created three different things. It's created a lambda function. That is the logic. That's all the logic that's gonna run uh, whenever the user says something. And then I've created models. And models are that training data with intents and utterances and slots and so forth. Uh, and it's created some metadata. Now, I'm going to, and, and it's just a very basic hello world skill that you get by default. I'm just gonna, without editing it, just go deploy that thing. And it's up and running. <clears throat> so it does a couple things. It creates a Lambda function, runs that. It is right now creating a interaction model. So it's taking all of that data in the uh, interaction model and training the natural language in it, creating a, a uh, natural language understanding model for it, and then uploading that. And if you look here, you can see, so now I'm in my IDE editor here, and uh, I can see the reInvent18 folder. I can see the Lambda function. Uh, here's my index file for hello world. Uh, and we'll go, we'll go change this, let's see. 
this here should be just about done. I'll go to the website. We'll go, we'll go test this guy real quick. I uh, go here, here. Go to my skills. And there's my reinvent 18 skill. And let's go hit test. Make sure it's actually fully done deployed. Yep, it's fully deployed. And I will just go open greeter, which is the name of it. And it says, welcome to skill. You can say hello, and you say hello, and it goes. So then I can go into my IDE, and instead of working in the Lambda console with their ID, I can use my own ID in the way I like to use it, and I can uh, make whatever changes I might want to make in here. Hello, world. You're all at reInvent, right? And then um, I can save this. And now, when I want to deploy, what I used to do is I would either edit that in the AWS console or zip up a package and then upload the package. But now I can just do ask, uh, deploy, and I can deploy the whole thing again. Or since I only made a change to my Lambda function, I can just target that, dash T, Lambda. And then it'll just upload only the Lambda uh, portion of the function. So that's done. And then um, if I go here, we'll stop. Open greeter. And then I say, hello. And it says, hello world. Awesome. So you can very quickly build, create, publish, go through the cycle back and forth. Okay, um, a few other things I guess there, you can, uh, you can test in the simulator, you can do a simulate and then just do things there. That leads into all sorts of cool things like unit testing and so forth. And, oh yeah, I guess I should show you this too, all right. Flipping back over. One other thing is in your IDE, you have uh, access to the CLI in the terminal so I could do, you know, ask new here, and it does the same thing, where it's like, please tell me the skill name. Yeah? Uh, I can also view my command palette in Visual Studio Code, and I have access to all the ask commands here, so I can see where I want to delete them, create skills, create from a template, use a manifest, all those different kinds of activities. So you have availability there. Uh, the next part is AWS CodeStar. So we're doing a lot of work with the other AWS teams to go through and figure out how can we help people do continuous integration, continuous deployment, large teams with all of your AWS infrastructure behind the scenes. And uh, so going through and using CodeStar would be a great way to do that if you really want to uh, get deep into it. All right, testing. Couple different things here for uh, testing. One is, I'll show you the simplest of unit tests. So let's say I'm in my Lambda function, and I want to test um, this guy. So what I'll do is, in the Lambda console, in the upper right-hand corner here, there's a place where I can do configure test events, and it will let you, uh, oh, my errors, that's interesting. It'll let you configure this JSON. So you saw the JSON before in the test tools where, so you could, you could add whatever intent you wanted, whatever attributes you might want, and you can get specifically the scenario you're interested in and run it against your code. Um, so let's see if that'll actually work with that error. And then I can just hit the test button. It'll go, it'll test, and I can see all the details. It'll type out the response here and I can see what's been happening and I can look at my console logs. All right, so that's like the simplest version of a test and that's what you might do to debug in the moment to figure out what's going on. Uh, one step better than this is to create a suite of unit tests where you would create these kinds of uh, tests and you'd be able to run them concurrently. A really good experience for this is Bespoken Tools. Uh, they have a whole suite of, uh, 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 like a little bit of a markup language that you can use to craft out a dialogue and then send it against your thing. And that way every time you're building something or just periodically in, period, in general, you can be testing your skill out and seeing how it's doing. So unit testing would be a great way to uh, keep a a highly active skill where you're doing a lot of coding on it, uh, up to date and current all the time. So that's bespoken tools, they're really great. 
The next thing you should think about is beta testing. So here I am in my, back in my developer console. I was doing my testing here. When I get all ready and I'm happy to share it with some people, I go to distribution. And then on the availability tab, I can see beta testers. And so this is where I can go through and add the, a bunch of people that I might know that I want to test. And it gives them access to my skill. So while I'm building my skill, my account has access to it. So if I have my account set up on this Echo, it'll all work. When I add beta testers, that skill is now available on their accounts. And then once I publish it, it's available on anybody's account. Right? So this is a, a way to have it uh, available just to a few people in the beginning. Uh, now the question is, how do you get the right beta testers and so forth? So let's go back and talk about some Pulse Labs. All right, all right, cool. Thanks, Paul. All right, so beta testing and usability testing is a subject very, very near and dear to our hearts at Pulse Labs. So usability testing is an important part in the development cycle of really any product that you want to create. But when designing a voice application, it's particularly important because people have very well-defined and very kind of instinctual ideas about how they expect to conversationally interact with something. They've had a lifetime of interacting with other people. And so you need to be able to understand how real people are going to be interacting with your products. And the best way to do this is to actually get and study real people who are interacting with your product. However, designing a usability test that's going to be valuable and that's going to give you actionable insights can be, is, can be a difficult process. So first off, you've got to design the right type of test. And a good rule of thumb here is that you should believe everything that your testers do, about half of what they say they do, and relatively little about what they say they would do. And the idea here is that by far the most valuable and useful data is the granular data that you're going to get from the users actually trying to use your skill or your application and figure out, okay, what do they like? What are they having troubles with? Where are they having trouble? And exactly why are they having trouble? Questions about what they do can give you a lot of context and a lot of uh, understanding about who this user is. And questions about what they would do can occasionally be valuable but you need to take those with a grain of salt because, to be honest, people are not always 100% sure what it is they would do. People will think, yeah, I'm going to go to a gym five times a week and work out, <laughs> and then they don't end up doing it. Mm -hmm. Similar things happen in a lot of usability tests. So you need to make sure that the number one uh, source of value for your usability test is actually going to come from observing what your users are doing while they're interacting with your skill. All right, so suppose you've designed a good usability test. Now you need to find your users. And here, unfortunately, a good rule of thumb is that the harder your users are to acquire, the more valuable their feedback is going to be. So the easier they are to get, the less useful their feedback is going to be. I can tell you we've seen this. We've, uh, I mean, there's a lot of value in that very first time that you share it with a friend, right? Because you get past all the initial stuff. A lot of times that very first test is, I've been typing in all of the script of what's going to happen, and it reads perfectly. I, I'm doing, and then as soon as I say it out loud and somebody responds, you're like, oh, that's actually not good mm -hmm. at all. So you fix those things up. And then pretty quickly you go to the next phases. Like we went down and we went in the lobby of our building and we had skills there and just random people walking through the lobby of the building. And yeah, you get, a, you get that's good. Like they experience it, you get some stuff. But it really just catches those first flavors, those first moments. So they're very easy to catch those people, but it was limited value, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It didn't go very deep. Yeah. The easiest people you're going to be able to get to do testing is going to be your coworkers that are maybe working on the same thing with you. <laughs> right. But those people are going to be about as different from the real end users as they could possibly be. Right. The next easiest people would probably be like friends and family, but friends and family input tends to be very positively biased. Great skill, Dylan. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Good <laughs> I love job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> love your mom, right? Yeah. <laughs> The most valuable possible input you're going to get is from a cross-section of your real user population. However, acquiring testers that can do that can be very difficult, particularly if that's not what your company does. All right, so suppose you've gotten over this big second hurdle and you've actually figured out who your testers are. Now you need to actually figure out how you're going to run your test. Well, one possibility is you could do on-site lab tests. 
On-site lab tests require a lot of coordination on time and location, some extensive pre-planning, and it's an artificial environment. You're going into a room, you know that people are watching you while you do it. It's not going to really mimic the experience that you're going to have out in the world when you're using Alexa at your home or at your office. And all of this can be expensive. You can try to do off-site lab tests, but if we don't already have the equipment set up or the logistics figured out, this requires a lot of pre-planning and extensive uh, equipment logistics. It can be really hard to record the interaction, and data collection in, for example, people's homes can be very tricky. Well, Pulse Labs provides a platform that can help you with this. So we have a platform that is designed to set up tests and then launch these tests and send them out to beta testers and then record all of the data from those interactions. Now we have an online Alexa emulator that can do this, but we've also, and this is actually the first time that we've announced this, we also have the ability to do these tests on a device in somebody's home. So all you need to test with us is just an Alexa device within your home, and we can actually get all of the data from those interactions. So just as an example, I've got my Echo right here. It's a bit precariously perched, but I think it'll be all right. <laughs> and let's say that I'm a tester. So I'm a tester, I've got my computer at home, and I want to start this test, and I receive my instructions about this test. For this, it's just going to be, use your Echo to find out a little bit more about reInvent. All right, so I'm going to say start the test. Alexa, hi. Hi there. Alexa, what is reInvent? reInvent is AWS's annual customer and partner conference. It's the largest global cloud computing conference. You can learn more by asking me, Alexa, enable the reInvent skill. Cool. Alexa, thank you. No worries. All right. So now, if I'm a tester at home, I just say, all right, I'm done. I stop the test, and then I answer any post-test questions. Here, the only one is, did you learn something about reInvent? Yes, I did. All right. Now, if I'm the developer or the designer, if I come back to my test here, I can actually see all of the data from that session. So as you can see, this is the transcript of the interaction I just had. On the right, you see all the post-test questions. And if you click on one of these speech bubbles to the left, so I think there might be an issue with the audio connection here. But should be playing. Let me go back. Oh, there we go. All right, so. Maybe just a refresh? I think we might be able to refresh here. Is the audio up? Oh, there we go. It says it's off. Well, it's through the HDMI, so it okay. should be playing. Hmm. No love. Just one second. Let me <laughs> show you something here. Well, one of the powerful things about this is that if you remember back to that Johnny Walker experience, they might not have known that people were asking for that because it would just come through as you got an intent for some unknown thing and you wouldn't actually know what was happening. And so here, you can hear the way they're saying it and go, oh, that's an interesting way to train my data. So you can come up with new interaction models and so forth. All right, so I've just brought up this session that we just had on my computer. And you'll notice that if I click on any of these buttons, Alexa, what is reInvent? You can actually hear the audio that the user generated. So if there's a question of, did, uh, did Alexa actually hear it correctly, and was it, the, and was it an issue with the skill, or was it an issue with your, uh, the speech to, or the NLU, 
you can actually dig deep and find that out because you get not just the transcript of that interaction, you also can get the user audio. So that lets you kind of dig deep and find out, all right, what is all the information that we can get from this interaction? All right, so I also mentioned that, switch back to the uh, slide deck there. So we have a platform that lets you record all this data, but we also have a vetted panel of user testers. So we have user testers from the United States, the UK, Canada, and Australia, all of whom we've vetted and all of whom we know will provide good usability feedback. So if you want to do a test with us, we can also provide the testers along with the platform. We love helping out skill developers, and if you have a skill that you might want to have user tested, please come and talk to me at the end of this presentation. We'd love to help you out. All right, so let's say that you've built your skill, you've designed it, you've tested it, you're ready to launch, you take it out to the real world, and now you want to find out how it's doing out in the wild. Well, Amazon provides some nice analytics tools that help you with that, and Paul can tell you a little bit more about them right now. All right, yeah, just building your skill and throwing it out isn't quite enough. You've got to actually watch and see what's happening so you can iterate and react to what customers are doing. There's a few different features that you have. You, you could, of course, roll your own. You should probably roll your own instrumentation and start looking at your logs and seeing what's happening, what kind of traffic you're getting, and so forth. In addition to that, uh, we've got a few different features for you. One is called an interaction path. And what this will show you is everything that the user said and what happened next. So I could see that um, they're very often, they'll like go into the town and the next they go into the forest and you expected them to go into the shop next. And you're like, wait, what is, that's an interesting path. I wasn't realizing that was gonna happen. You can see how they're flowing. Uh, the other thing you can see that's pretty interesting here is you can see how often people say help or stop, right? At certain points and, and get it. Now there's these little red waterfalls at the end of a few of these points. And those are places where the person left the skill. So you can see they went here to here to here and then they left. Um, I heard an interesting scenario the other day. Um, uh, who was it? It was David Spitsky. He's a, an evangelist here at Amazon. He built a, a dice rolling skill, a really simple dice rolling skill. He looked at his interaction path and was noticing that people who came into the skill and just knew how to do it, they just said, oh, roll a d20, and it did it. They would come in, roll a d20, and then they would leave. That would be sort of the end of their experience. The people who didn't know how to use it, they came in and they said, well, show me what to do. And then it showed them how to roll a dice, and they rolled another one. And then they, they, he noticed that they tend to experiment. Like roll a d6, roll a d12, what's, roll a d400, and keep trying these different things. And so you could tell from the interaction path that there was this, this playfulness that was happening with people who got to experiment. So he's thinking about going back and adding like this layer of like playfulness to keep people engaged, right? So it's the kind of thing you can see based on your interaction paths. So super valuable thing to look at. There's also a whole series of uh, other kinds of data that you can look at. One of the features that we now have is in-skill purchasing. And so this is where you can let customers buy digital products inside of your skill. They can, for example, unlock a new level or unlock a new quiz pack, something like that. Or they can buy consumables, so they could buy like coins or hints or something that you can use up over time. Uh, or you can buy subscriptions. So maybe you've got a product where you're constantly updating new content and you want people to, subscri to subscribe. Uh, and with this, you can start to see how many pe people have had an offer, how many people, how many have accepted, what's your conversion rate, um, and then how is the engagement of that when people are upselling. So it's an important thing when you start to think about selling goods and optimizing your experience to make sure that you can uh, see what's happening with all of those things. So um, I would argue that you should instrument yourself and like see what people are doing and then also use these tools together to get things optimized. All right, so got a few different pieces here. All right, so a recap of some of the best practices here for designing and launching a great skill. So when you're designing it, you want to remember to be adaptable, be contextual, and to be available. When you're actually building your skill, Amazon provides a lot of awesome tools to help you with that, like the skill management API, the uh, command line interface, and now integration with your favorite IDEs. So those two, I think, are really important and is what I would argue a lot of developers are doing today. Right? They're thinking about design, they're trying very simplistic things, and they're getting some stuff built, and you're starting to see them move into the CLI kind of a mode where they're getting a little more professional grade with it. Um, super, super important that people step out of the design patterns they've had in the past and start to think about voice first, and it's, it's sort of like when you move a web page to a mobile app, it doesn't quite work. You've got to actually think about touch. Same thing here. 
Um, but those two alone aren't enough. Um, and if you want to be competitive and actually build a skill that's going to outperform the others and get great monetization experiences and great engagement, you'll need to get into the testing uh, phases and thinking about how you're, you're operating your skill post-launch. And so testing, um, there's, of course, the in-the-moment debugging kinds of testing, uh, unit testing. Uh, you can build your own unit tests. Uh, all the samples that we have up on GitHub have uh, unit test cases written out for you. You can run them through Mocha or whatever kind of client you would like to use, and they all work with bespoken tools. So, uh, in fact, the bespoken folks wrote those and submitted them to the, the repos. It's really cool. So uh, use those kind of tools for uh, testing. And then the beta testing stuff is super important to get real customers' feedback and let people try it out. And uh, things like platform, uh, platforms like uh, Pulse Labs are really, really powerful for that because you get the full experience. And then launching, yeah, just firing off a skill and not coming back to it is probably the best way to get a poor review. Uh, I've seen a lot of skills that are really exciting and they get a great adoption and great reviews until that moment where your most loyal customers say, I used to love this skill, but it's never been updated. It's never changed. It's never gotten better. And then it sort of falls off, and now you start getting bad reviews, and it's very hard to recover. So it's important to watch what people are doing, see how they're doing it, and uh, adapt and learn as you go. It's also really useful for your next skill, and your next skill, and your next skill, because you'll be learning from one, and, and those, those will teach you how to be a better VUI designer uh, moving forward. So with all of these, Take a picture. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the time to get the camera out and take the picture. Mm -hmm. um, everything we've talked about, we have a web page for or a uh, guide for. These are all shortened URLs. So if you go into your browser and you type alexa.design slash design or build or test or launch, alexa.design slash launch, it'll talk about this in way more depth. Um, everything we've shown has really deep samples behind it. So you can go to our GitHub repositories. Uh, that would be... Um, alexa.design slash tutorials <coughs> or github.com slash alexa and you can uh, see how they all work and sort of fiddle with it yourself and did everybody get their shot? Okay, I think everybody's got their all shot. Right. We got the so cool. Thank you. Yes, thank you all so much for coming. Uh, it's been an honor to be here and thank you Paul and AWS and Amazon for uh, letting us present here. It's been great and uh, if you want to check us out more, you can just email me at dylan at pulselabs.ai or just check out our website, pulselabs.ai. We'd love to help you with user testing. And I'm super curious to see what you make. I, the thing that makes me the most happy is to see something really cool and interesting come out of the community. And I'm hopeful that what's going to happen is, just like in mobile, where some small scrappy uh, studio came along and they built something amazing. like. Rovio or Angry Birds, and they just sort of change the way you think about mobile. I think the same thing is going to happen in voice, and I think it's going to be somebody here in this room, somebody who's dedicated enough to come and listen and think about this and sort of work on the craft of this. So if you ever have interesting ideas or want to talk to me and bounce ideas off me, I'm at Paul Cutsinger. Um, the first thing I'll probably do, well, I'll talk to you, of course, right away, but I'll also connect you with our champions. Uh, there's a great group of Alexa champions who have been really deep into this space, and they love to talk to folks. So there's a lot of resources for you, and uh, I just can't wait to see what happens over the next one, two, five, ten years. It's going to be a really, really different world because of the stuff this whole community does. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. We'll be off on the side if there's questions.